This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and this is episode 82. I dive into the reboot of the Clone Wars series on Disney Plus and the rich politics of this really amazing animated series that has always done a fine job of making Star Wars fans think just a little bit deeper about the state of affairs in a galaxy far, far away. We're going to hear today via hollow recording from Herb Scribner, a journalist with the Deseret News in Utah, who writes on all things politics, plus Star Wars. He's my kind of guy. He's done some wizard analysis of the latest Clone Wars episodes and what they say about war and trauma. Joining me today also as co-host to go through all of this and more is Mohammed Shakibnia. He's an organizer for the Bernie Sanders campaign out in the great state of Oregon. Mohammed, how are you? Good evening to you. I'm good, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. So uh, how's life in Oregon? Is it a great state? Sell me on it. It is. It is. So I'm here finishing up my, my last term of university, um, of undergrad. And it's a good, it's a good time. Um, I'm just finishing up and I'm hoping to go to law school afterwards. So I'm not going to be here for too long. But yeah, I was born and raised in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, really good community out here. So definitely come whenever you're, you're able to. Well, I actually would love to. I've been wanting to go out west for the longest time, and uh, that will have to happen at some point. Now, you're working really hard out there as a grassroots organizer. Uh, how is the campaign going? You're, you've been working on the behalf of Bernie Sanders. You've got a great selfie on your Twitter profile of him in the car right behind you. I, I suppose uh, maybe that was local or in Iowa. But how has everything been going? I know it's been kind of a tough two weeks. Yeah, it has been. But really have to say that sort of the energy and enthusiasm of this campaign has been great. I was particularly focusing on Muslim constituency organizing, so organizing the Muslim community out in Iowa where I first began, and then I was redeployed to Nevada and then Michigan. So that selfie that you see with Bernie and I is actually in Michigan, uh, in Dearborn, which is really the heart of Arab Americans. Um, in the United States and really organizing them and getting them involved in the political process has been a joy because elections will come and go as we know and I know what Bernie stands for I support his vision for the country but really making sure that people get politically involved and engaged has been the main goal uh, that I've been focusing on uh, making sure that we start organizations we get people to get their family and their friends involved and be there for generations to come uh, because I think for marginalized communities, it's really important to stay involved in order to stand up for our civil rights or human rights, because if we don't, they're going to be taken away. Well, the uh, the stakes are, are higher than ever, I think, and then everybody is feeling uh, that pressure in some way or another. And besides that, you're staying busy with, you were just telling me before the show, you're writing a thesis on the Clone Wars for school. <laughs> you are, oh man, you're, you are crushing it. <laughs> for, yeah, for an undergraduate thesis in particular, you really want to do something you enjoy, and there's nothing better to do than the Clone Wars, especially for someone mm-hmm. like me who's a geek. So focusing on that and really the political economic and racial themes in the Clone Wars are something I think are really worth looking at. And yeah, not just looking they, at the Clone Wars as a form of entertainment, but seeing how it can sort of evoke a political consciousness in people. And I think it can really be a good tool for that in providing that sort of lens that highlights vulnerable communities. Well, we're going we're gonna to get deep into all of that, but I think first we're going to go ahead and start with some top-level Star Wars news. I want to talk to you a little briefly about the state of the primary, but let's start with this. I mean, did you see that they are going to cast live on screen Ahsoka Tano to be played by Rosario Dars- Dawson? Uh, this is, oh my gosh, what a time to be alive. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, and it's interesting. Uh, 
Rosario actually endorsed Bernie Sanders as president. Yeah, well, we need to talk about her partner. Her her partner is Senator Cory Booker. Um, I mean, my God, I didn't actually know this until looking into uh, Rosario today and just kind of getting a sense for who all uh, who she is and like what kind of movies and, and TV shows she's been in. And there was Cory. So that was just like a, a mind blown moment. And and Cory, he endorsed Biden. Ooh. Right. Yeah. He's on my blacklist. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are, are you, are you, are, do you kind of look at that as a, as a political operative and, and you like, feel like you kind of get it, like you kind of get why people do that? Or do you feel like pretty burned by that? Well, I think in politics in particular, there is a sort of political game that you have to play, you know, in the contemporary world, like the democratic primary, as we see, like people going after each other earlier on and now consolidating behind the candidate who they think is best suited to win in their opinion. So we're seeing that, like we saw the criticisms that Corey and Kamala Harris in particular gave to Biden on his history with, you know, segregation and racial justice issues. But now we see they've lined up. So one of the reasons that I uh, support Bernie is because of his principled stances, like whether you agree with him or not, you know, he honestly is telling you what he thinks about how society should be shaped. And that's something I really respect about him. Well, kind of going back here to to Ahsoka, you know, this is the hero of the Clone Wars series, the Star Wars Rebel series on Disney. And apparently Ahsoka's going to be in season two of The Mandalorian. I, I really wouldn't have expected that necessarily. It raises some major questions about who The Mandalorian is going to be delivering Baby Yoda to, because I, I presume that that is going to be one of the main arcs of the next season, is that, you know, he kind of adopted the mission of like, I need to get this thing back to whoever its people are. So we're either going to find out that like Ahsoka maybe is looking for baby Yoda and, and trying to figure out this, this young power, or they're going to cross paths along the way. But my personal theory is that this might all be about the dark saber, right? Like there's a little bit of a, a trace between what's happened in the Mandalorian and the background of Ahsoka. Um, you are a scholar of the Clone Wars, so you probably remember at the end of season one, Ahsoka faced off with Mandalorian Pre Vizsla of the Death Watch, and that was the first time I think that we have seen the Dark Saber like really in action as Star Wars fans. And Ahsoka faced that herself. Um, Pre Vizsla ended up being killed by Darth Maul, and that was then when the Dark Saber went into Maul's possession, and then from him it ended up with Sabine. The big question that the Mandalorian posed is how did it get in the hands of Moff Gideon, and where the heck? is Sabine. I need to know that she's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, particularly the Baby Yoda memes that are going to come out in season two. I'm really, really looking forward to that. (laughs) Your priorities are straight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I I now, I have to say, like on the the Cory Booker and Rosario Dawson connection, I don't know why I keep saying Darson. Dawson um, connection. I am so excited because I have been trying my darndest to get in touch with Cory Booker's people um, to try to talk to him for my book that I am writing. Because oh, wow. I, what are you writing I, a book on? I'm writing a book called How the Force Can Fix America, uh, an exploration of the themes and principles that are at the core of Star Wars and how it can make our country, our civic lives, and maybe the world a better place. One of those one of those themes is obviously redemption, kind of the the one of the main you know uh, touching points of Star Wars. But you know, wrapped up in the theme of redemption is you know the the issue of justice and defining what justice is, and then what payment um, for wrongdoings actually looks like. That's something that is really core to the political um, motives of Cory Booker, and something that he's been litigating for years. And I also have a chapter that I'm writing on humility and. I actually think Cory Booker would be someone really interesting to speak to about uh, humility and how it works in politics. So I, I am try I am trying all sorts of like friends who know friends and professional connections who know people to try to get me in touch with Booker and uh, mm, now he has a now he has a real connection to Star Wars and I have questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think Cory Booker was particularly a strong Star Trek fan too, and you know Star yeah. Trek has mm-hmm. many many deep utopian political themes that run through it. 
I have I've heckled him a couple of times about this. Like <laughs> he's he's chosen the wrong side. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are lessons to learn in both. You know, Star Trek definitely paints a more utopian positive a vision of the future, whereas Star Wars is a lot more dystopian in the way that it tries to tell us about the issues that we can look to uh, warnings about society and how we can actually shape society in a better way rather than like what we see in Star Wars. Yeah, I think Star Trek is a lot more prescriptive. Like I think it's a, it takes a more hands-on approach with like saying explicitly what kind of societies that we should have. And Star Wars really stays like at the top, like conceptual level. And I think leaves you to connect the dots a little bit more and I like that. I like that personally. But uh, regardless, Cory Booker is a nerd. Um, so, you know, I'm, ho- I'm hoping maybe if I can get in touch with him for my book project that he will want to talk about it. Mm-mm-mm. So, so salacious. I didn't realize that that Dawson had endorsed, uh, had endorsed Bernie. Well, congratulations. Maybe too soon. I need to write the damn thing. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be great. Looking forward to it. Uh, Well, we're going to dive into our main segment of the show today, the politics of the Clone Wars episodes on Disney+. Plus. The first couple of episodes that we have uh, have been treated to seeing are The Bad Batch, A Distant Echo, On the Wings of Caradax, Unfinished Business, and... I don't know the episode five name. I looked around for it, but the newest episode features Ahsoka Tano and what happens uh, with her after we last saw her in the Clone Wars series when she left the Jedi Order. Um, I don't know if you know the name of the episode, but I sure don't. So the the first arc of the Clone Wars on Disney Plus focuses on the Bad Batch and some of the familiar themes of war and trauma that we've seen on screen before. You had the character, uh, the clone Rex, searching for his old friend, clone trooper Echo, and saving him from captivity from the Separatists, along with a band of misfit clones who basically were like <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the well, they're called the Bad Batch. They were like, um, def- not deformed, I'm trying to like get the wording right here, but like genetically incorrect uh, uh, clones of Jango Fett. So they are like their own little unit, and they're trying to retake the planet of Anaxis. Um, so, Mohammed, you love the Clone Wars. How have you been feeling about the restart of the Clone Wars and these first couple of episodes focused on the state of the war? Yeah, I think. These episodes in particular really highlighted how the war affects planets who would rather not get involved, like we saw with, you know, Anaxis and, you know, the way that uh, the, the native species there was actually being put on the forefront of the war when they didn't want anything to do with it. And we see how the Republic and the Separatists both alike are putting these communities in a place where they don't want to be. And even after that, you know, we saw how those communities are the ones that face the, the biggest consequences because of it. Literally, there was a genocide, you know, put against the native population, the politics, uh, you know, who said that they didn't want the war on their planet, you know, and they essentially became the victims of a genocide you know, put in between. Yeah. And and the last time that you were on the show, we talked about this because in the original Clone Wars series, there were many episodes that dealt with um, indigenous peoples being caught in the war and, and suffering for it. And that was the, that was what brought you on last time. And this was this, uh, I think appropriate that the, the people of Anaxis were in a similar situation. Right. It's like the, the episode was the, was trespass with the towels, right? The Pantorans, you know, essentially creating this clash of civilizations narrative. And we see similar things with this one in the politics, right? I think the Bad Batch com- uh, called them primitives, sort of suggested that they were backward. But it was really the politics that allowed them to even be able to find Echo in the first place. Without, you know, the Caradax that came to help them, Um, and, you know, provided the scouting resources that they needed, they wouldn't have been able to find Echo. I think the only thing that I was, I was taken off guard by at the end of Unfinished Business and the Wings of Caradax was when the indigenous peoples of Anaxis, um, you know, like thanked the Jedi and the clones for, you know, like fighting alongside them in that, in that situation. Cause I, I was still sort of of the mindset that they brought the war there and <laughs> I was surprised that they were like, Oh, we're friends now. I would have, uh, I would have, yeah, I would have liked it if they were like, all right, 
now leave. Um, you know, just like we fought together, now goodbye. Please, please never look at us again. And that was yeah. one of my more serious critiques. I'm like, why are they thanking them for literally a, a brutal genocide that was brought to their people? Like the, the scenes from that conflict were really, really brutal and graphic. You know, some yeah, of like and, the, and, and if I may, a lot um, of the people just being slaughtered. You mentioned you mentioned genocide. Technically, a genocide, or are you just talking about the battle? Because I, I didn't see any like coordinated wipeout of the people. Just like a battle where a bunch of people died. I think I think the the I think it was pretty coordinated by the separatists. You know, they were targeting them in some really really brutal ways. I think there was one of the weapons that the the techno union was using was an evaporator or something like that. Um, yeah. This wasn't actually included in the actual episode, but what part of the writing was centered on was how uh, Wat Tambor would use one of the primitive or one of the native um, people as an example of like wiping them out. He wanted to use that weapon on them and said, this is what's going to happen, you know, to all of you, if you don't get out of the way and let us do what we want. It was very targeted in saying that we own the entire planet. I think one of the quotes from that episode was uh, from Wat Tambor that was going to be included, but wasn't in the actual was, you know, Wat Tambor saying that we own this entire planet. The techno union owns it. Yeah, and, and I, I found like those those series of episodes to be incredibly rich and very and very much in the tradition of how Clone Wars has thought of, um, you know, the war itself and what the implications of the Republican separatist conflict are for the rest of the galaxy. Everybody else gets caught up in it. Now, to to kind of talk about some of the other themes of the Clone Wars, it really came down to personal stories between Rex, traditional clones, and what we talked about earlier, the Bad Batch, where these sort of um, you know, genetic uh, whoopsie daisies of the Django Fett cloning process. And I spoke with Herb Scribner of the Deseret News about that arc and what he thought all of it really meant and what we were supposed to take away from that lesson that was being put forward by Rex and the Bad Batch learning to work together. We're going to listen to that now. This episode that we're doing is about the Clone Wars reboot on Disney Plus and what it is all about because the Clone Wars, as you well know, has never been just a, a kids show or a, an action series. It's pretty layered. And as far as the politics of Star Wars go, the Clone Wars has always been where it's at. Would you agree? Totally. And that's what really draws me to the show is, you know, I'm a big politics fan i'm a big star wars fan i like the kind of war aspects of star wars that funny enough you don't get a ton of in the actual movies so uh it's been cool to watch the show and kind of see the political dealings the behind the scenes things the you know under the radar stuff that it just makes it really exciting and makes it more war based and i think yeah the clone wars is a perfect spot for that so it's been fun to watch that over the years and see the different political discussions that they have and and what what kind of questions that raises for us especially people who are maybe a little older and can kind of you know get some of those messages it's interesting to like kind of talk through those yeah well they're back now on disney plus with a new season i i I think you you had mentioned that it is called like the lost missions season right um this new season six they're going to be doing this weekly show they start off with bad batch And we've been talking a little bit about some of the anti-war themes of the Clone Wars and how, you know, the Clone Wars in its essence is is really about some of the toll that war actually takes on the ground because Star Wars has a way of sometimes glossing over um, the fact that Star Wars is about death and destruction, power struggle. And in Clone Wars, you get to really see that up front um, and it plays out in a really interesting way with Captain Rex and sort of what he's going through with the loss of friends. Um, what have you been sort of seeing going on in the the relaunch of, of the Clone Wars and particularly in the Bad Batch episode that sort of stood out to you in terms of its message and what it all means? Yeah, I think for Bad Batch especially, the message is kind of that, you know, if you keep the faith, you will be rewarded in some way. And I think that's a very powerful message to kind of hit in this final season because 
in one way it's telling fans like, Hey, have faith in us. We'll give you a really satisfying conclusion. But in another way it's saying, you know, to soldiers, to people who are in this war, Hey, if you stick with this war and you stick it out, you will be rewarded in some way. And with captain Rex, that's especially true because he has faith that, you know, this mission that they go on is going to, is going to pay off for him and finding one of the lost soldiers. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, he's keeping the faith to kind of keep going and, and kind of find one of his, one of his, uh, lost squad mates. And, and even more so there's this one moment. And I kind of mentioned this in this piece I wrote that, you know, he's gazing at this photo of him and his former squad mates. Um, and he says, you know, uh, he says the quote, so many troopers gone. And it kind of is one of the first times that we, get a perspective that this war has a toll on people. I think like you were kind of saying, you know, in the movies, it kind of glosses it over, you know, they kind of mentioned like, Oh, you know, I lost this person, this person. We especially see that in star Wars, the force awakens where, you know, they mentioned like the time that passed, the things that they lost. But in this episode, you see specifically that like a soldier's going through the loss of his friends, of other troopers. And you really get a perspective of how long the battle lasted. And I think that's a really, powerful message to take away from the show. Where are you sort of drawing this idea that bad batch is about keeping the faith? I think, I think that's really interesting and I, I don't disagree. Um, but where are you sort of drawing that from that, you know, this, this episode and this first really run of episodes focusing on the bad batch is about kind of not giving up on like the war that it was all worth something, right? Cause that's kind of the big struggle of the clone wars and Anakin deals with it as well is like, why are we doing this? And what was this all for in the first place? The moment that I kind of just mentioned where captain Rex is looking at that photo and he sees these other soldiers that he fought with. And it's like, okay, well what, what's the point of this? Like what, why did I get to this point? How did it's I get men to this and point? The meat grinder, right? right yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's a, there's a response from commander Cody where he says, you know, it's hard to be the one who survives. And to me, that uh, that resonated with like uh, where we are as Star Wars right now, as in terms of fandom, um, because you know Star Wars has been through so much since 1977. I mean, you had those original batch of movies, you had those the books, but before the prequels, then you had the prequels, then you have this whole Disney era, and to be a Star Wars fan now and kind of have to have made it this far after everything is like a huge accomplishment. I feel because it's been through so many, to- you know. Lefts, right, ups, down. You're kind of like looking at like the fan as the soldier in this sort of analogy that it's speaking to us uh, that we have kind of all been through this long, long story together, and it's messaging not just about war, but about what it means to be a Star Wars fan. Because I, I didn't pick up on that, but reading your article, like, I think that really stood out as something that is as is possible and compelling. Yeah, I think that's what really hit with me. And I think part of it is because this has just been on my mind for so long, especially with the rise of Skywalker and kind of the divisiveness there and and The Last Jedi, the divisiveness there and just like seeing – I mean, you know, a quick side note. You know, I went to Disneyland not too long ago and I saw so many people wearing Star Wars gear. And I kind of didn't remember that from my childhood. And I think it just – there's a new level of Star Wars fan now where it's kind of a casual fandom and so when I watched this episode through those lenses, you know, I was kind of thinking they're kind of talking to Star Wars fans. They're saying like, listen, like, you know, it's hard to survive this. You know, you're going to we're going to lose fans along the way. But if you stick with it, you will find a story you like. Obviously, people aren't going to love every single story Star Wars comes out with. But if you stick with it, if you watch shows like the Clone Wars, or maybe you watch the Mandalorian, you're going to find something you like. So just stick with us and we will deliver you something you like. That's the takeaway I took from it. And I don't know if that was their intention at all, but it really resonated with me. And that's kind of why, like, I'm really excited for this season because it's kind of playing to the Star Wars fan a little bit. It's kind of bringing you back into the world, the universe without these kind of controversial moments. Um, the Clone Wars has always been a solid product for Star Wars. And so I think, you know, having that faith in Star Wars through the Clone Wars is really important. Uh, if you're, if you're a fan looking to 
stay involved with with Star it, Wars. It's remarkable to me, lay, kind of hearing what you're laying out here about what all the belt, uh, the Clone Wars is able to pack into like a mere 20 minutes of an animated series because there are three things that, that you've mentioned that I think are all true and we'll talk about the third one here uh, which is one that they're kind of looking at you know the trauma of war being the one that survives it's kind of a, a commentary on fandom and what this all meant for everybody going through it with Star Wars and then there's also just the the very obvious uh, question uh, and message about diversity. Uh, the slogan or the intro quote for the episode is embrace others for their differences, for that makes you whole. And that applies to everything that we've talked about, whether that be the the schisms and fandom that have really started to break down along identity and differences outside of the world of Star Wars fandom that have now been applied to whether or not people get along within the fandom. Uh, but then just, you know, Star Wars is kind of always believed in diversity and uh, pluralism and the idea that you would get, you know, this defect group of clones sharing space with the, uh, the more purebred clones. And really they're the ones who bully <laughs> the proper clones, right? It's, it's kind yeah. of funny. They, uh, there is, there is no love loss between these, these two groups. And uh, I think the proper clones kind of feel like the bad batcher, like a total freak show, but they don't care. That's true in so many different um, universes and franchises. You know, you're going to have these certain groups that seem, you know, in anything. There's, you know, it's just interesting to, you're going to meet people who don't always seem like you or people who are different than you and like, or have a different skills than you. And that's what was really powerful about this message too, especially the first and second episode, especially because they don't both deal with that batch of soldiers. Um that you got to embrace who they are. You got to have faith in them that they're going to carry out what they do and that you're going to embrace those other types of characters. I think that's just as powerful star Wars message in general, you know, supporting people who are different than you and embracing different kinds of cultures. And we've seen that throughout star Wars. And I think it hits home again with the bad batch and, it's it's one of those messages too about the clone wars that i love because it's not only something that like because i guess you know there's this level of people who just see the clone wars as a kid show and kid shows should have good moral values and good messages and i think that's a very powerful message right embrace others for their differences but it's also something that we as adults can remember and take with us as we continue to watch star wars especially um but just in our everyday life and i think that's where star wars has always been powerful it, like talking about politics talking about the big bigger messages that we're dealing with, you know, and standing up to tyranny and these, you know, bad guys. And I think that's uh, another, this is another example of that where Star Wars is showing you a message and hoping you can, you know, find something in it for your own life. All right, that was Herb Scribner of the Deseret News. I'll put a link to uh, his Twitter account and a lot of his works in the show notes so you can follow up. Um, Muhammad, we got to talk about episode five. I just watched it uh, the other day. Uh, you're getting this a couple of days before the episode actually uh, drops here for Beltway Banthas. But, you know, this will be what everybody's watching while this episode comes out. And we are getting uh, what happens next in the story of Ahsoka Tano after she leaves the Jedi Order. And uh, maybe you can just sort of recap for us, like, how we got to this point. Because I think a lot of folks might just be be watching this episode and kind of forgotten like what happened <laughs> uh, before, and it's it's pretty interesting political stuff. Yeah, so the Jedi Temple bombing was probably one of the most salient episode arcs in terms of the Clone Wars, touching on social themes. In my opinion, I think you had a lot of themes that result around the criminal justice system, but particularly how Ahsoka Tano was presumed guilty. If you take a look at the story. Ahsoka was blamed for the Jedi Temple bombing when there was a lot of evidence that was pointing actually in the other direction, not towards her. There was a lot of evidence that said that she actually wasn't at the scene of the crime um, and that defended her. But what happened is she was presumed guilty right away. And we found out that Barris Afi, spoiler alert, was one of the people that uh, actually carried out the bombing and not her. And we had people such as uh, leaders in the Republic, like uh, Admiral Tarkin or General Tarkin. We also had leading figures from uh, the Jedi 
who like uh, Mace Windu in particular, Kiadi Mundi, who also blamed her and said that they needed to prosecute her. So this presumption of guilt that was placed on Ahsoka Tano, in my opinion, mirrors a lot of the experiences of African-Americans in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and Ahsoka learns a lot about the, the two faces of the Republic in that entire experience of her being on the outs with the Jedi Order and the Republic itself. And, you know, at the end of that episode or at the end of that arc, uh, Ahsoka decides to leave the Jedi Order even after she's been exonerated, which was um, heartbreaking to Anakin, I think, in, in many ways. And, and he carried that with him through the duration of the Clone Wars. And Ahsoka rides off, gets on her speeder, and she takes off. And this episode starts with her crash landing in Coruscant's lower levels, level 1313, because her speeder breaks down. And she, she lands on this, uh, this, this docking platform, and she immediately is met uh, with this young woman named Trace, who is, I guess, sort of a, a fixer. You know, she kind of runs a, a repair shop in the lower levels of Coruscant. And uh, Ahsoka starts sort of learning the ropes of how life is down below. Um, what did you kind of think when this episode got going? What were you sort of seeing that sh- that was popping up right off the bat in terms of the, the looks, the messages of this new episode of, of The Clone Wars? Right. I think Trace in particular pointed to a lot of themes that people in the underlevels are feeling. You know, they're feeling invisible. They're feeling underrepresented. They're feeling like they are voiceless in terms of how they're being represented by the Republic, right? These are communities that are facing poverty, they're facing economic catastrophe back there. I think Trace actually pointed to how the upper levels, the air is clear, and you're from that area. You're sort of up in this elite bastion of the Republic, and you don't understand the experiences that we are going through. Yeah, she she hardcore othered Ahsoka, you know, just like you fell out of the sky on your speeder and like, welcome to my world. Um, but yeah, yeah. And interestingly, yeah. something that I've pointed, I, I uh, saw that was really interesting is how she immediately helps Ahsoka, right? Like we have these perceptions of people in the underworld being more... Um, more the tendency to be more criminal right to be more untrusting and you know purveyors of suspicion but she was one of the people who actually helped her immediately and ahsoka even asked her why are you helping me she said this is because you know anyone would do the same thing you know this is this is my responsibility but she she doesn't do it that easily. One of the, the main things that, that they experience in this, you know, getting to know each other is that Trace is kind of like trying to like nickel and dime her for everything uh, when she needs her, her speeder fix. She, she you know, kind of just tells like, you know, this, this isn't free <laughs> um, and you're going to need to pay for this and pay for that. But she kind of doesn't really stick to that. She doesn't really charge her. I think she just kind of wanted to see if Ahsoka would pay. Um, and then Ahsoka did not and probably could not. I don't know what kind of um, credits, you know, a Jedi carries around in their pocket. But it's pretty safe to say that since she had just gotten out of that big legal mess that she had nothing at the time to actually pay for. Right, pay right. I, yeah, yeah, I'm with you for sure. I think that that that, you know, her lending her hand out in order to help Ahsoka, I think that was pretty powerful. Even when she was asking and trying to feel the pulse of whether she had any money or not, I think that was pretty interesting. Um, But also, like, looking at the conditions of, like, why she would, you know, ask for this kind of money, why she's feeling this sort of pain, is because the Republic and the Jedi have really abdicated the responsibility to those people in the underlevels, right? These are people who are facing disproportionate amounts of poverty and catastrophe and yeah, violence uh, just from, you know, the nature of poverty. It's it's really rough down there. And and it's it's amazing when you think about how deep uh, Coruscant goes. We basically are always treated just to the surface level of Coruscant. And if you kind of wanted to take a 99% to 1% analogy, uh, you know, you you see the tip of the iceberg of Coruscant all the time. And those are the only people who are prosperous and, and slightly, you know, um, enjoying their lives. Everybody else down below the water, if you will, of Coruscant is, is destitute. Yes. In fact, the Jedi are literally in an ivory tower of sorts. They're Republic as an institution is literally in an ivory tower. And 
it, it, what Trace really pointed to was the connection between their foreign policy and the way that they're carrying out these wars and how they're taking care of their citizenry. Like she said, the Jedi are starting all these wars. They don't care about us, investing all this money, all this resources into all these civilian lives being uh, affected and killed. And here we are suffering by the violence of poverty. And do you do you think that's fair? Because one of the things about the Jedi and, you know, their role in the war is that you and I both kind of know what's going on behind the scenes of the Clone Wars, why the Clone Wars is happening. The Jedi were very much kind of like duped into this entire situation, but, you know, did not do what they should have done to kind of, you know, keep the Jedi out of it. They could have stepped aside and said, like, you know, we're not going to be soldiers. We're going to keep doing peacekeeping work, community work, and if the Republic wants to fight the Separatists, y'all have at it. Um, but is it fair to say the Jedi, you know, were, were the ones, like, you know, driving the war and starting it? Because that's definitely something the people of Coruscant believe, but I don't know if that's really true. I would say that they definitely are complicit in many ways, in particular mm-hmm. because of their role of being military generals. I think they understand that the role they are taking and why they try to be these purveyors of you know, social justice and peace and making sure people are taken care of. How can you say that when you're carrying out this war that is diverting resources from you know, people in the galaxy that need it the most? I think they, if they, yeah. and I think Yoda understood this to some degree. Uh, he was very conflicted about the war itself. Um, he he thought, in fact, in many cases that it was a mistake, and he later later on said that I believe in like Return of the Jedi, um, uh, saying how you know it was a mistake to carry out this war, and even later parts of the Clone Wars. He said, I think in the trailer of this season that no one really wins a war. So I think if they made an an effort, a concerted effort to say, we need to end this, you know, by any means necessary through diplomacy or whatever it took, uh, then they could have had a, a better role in making sure that happened. Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt that like people like Yoda felt regret for the rest of their life. I'm I'm not sure that it was verbalized in the films. Yoda doesn't talk about the Clone Wars um, on screen, but I think that they've kind of gone out of their way over the course of many different um, many different extra installments. So like, like Yoda really realized that they were they were the problem by the time it reached um, the end of the war and the rise of the Empire itself. But kind of backing up here a little bit. So Ahsoka experienced kind of firsthand, like what life for Trace is like when a lone shark by the name of Pentu comes around their shop with a couple of enforcers and they are looking to collect money from Trace's older sister named Rafa, who is, I guess you could say a, a sort of petty criminal, a, a, um, you know, a schemer, you know, she's kind of always like running like a new, a new hustle on the streets. Um, and Ahsoka basically bats them off after, after Trace kind of gets beat up here a little bit. Um, And that's kind of when she finds out, one, that Trace has a sister. And then we are introduced to Rafa, who is a much different character than Trace, who is a little gun shy. She's just a little bit more patient and kind. uh, And she seems reluctant to engage in the kind of situations that her older sister, Rafa, uh, seems pretty comfortable in, you know, we meet Rafa and she's got like, you know, this kind of like fur coat look going on and, you know, she's, she's already working on her next hustle. Um, and so Ahsoka's kind of caught in the middle of that. I think she was like taking clothes at the laundromat they were at, you know, the, the going through and trying to literally take people's clothes, right? Like, you know, this, this was a situation where, you know, she was hustling, like you said, for her next move, but she also felt inclined to, to, to steal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was stealing. And the, uh, the whole relationship, um, comes to a head later in the episode when this Twi'lek arrives and he has a new job for Rafa and he enlists, um, Trace and Rafa in helping to rebuild or fix a, a set of binary load lifters, which are these giant droids with, you know, big, big kind of like, um, crane type arms. Um, it's worth noting that the binary load lifter is first mentioned in, uh, 1977's A New Hope. So this is kind of a nod to what those actually look like. Now, Ahsoka urges 
the the two of them, but particularly um, Trace, to be very cautious with binary load lifters because they have a tendency to go you know uh, go off the off the chain. Like they're very violent droids, and they need restraining bolts put on them before being powered on. And they don't do that, and and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and I think, in my opinion, this really pointed to sort of again the conditions that and the stress and the economic insecurity and sort of the feeling of scarcity that these two sisters are put under. Why do they have to resort to this type of work? You know, why do they have to put themselves and society in harm's way? And this sort of brings us back to that social responsibility aspect of this versus self-interest. You know, maybe society as a whole in the way that our government is structured could have actually taken care of this problem before, at least in my opinion. Just like we're seeing today, you know, with uh, people dealing with these issues where we have, you know, in the United States, 40 million people living in poverty. You have 78% of people living paycheck to paycheck. Less of, you know, half of workers make $30,000 or less a year. If those people are under this mindset of economic scarcity, then they're more likely to put themselves in harm's way, do things that might not be uh, healthy for them. Yeah, but, but you know, uh, kind of the, the Clone Wars has a way of kind of, because it's Star Wars and Star Wars can be kind of vague in its messaging, kind of go in all directions on sort of their message. So I want to tell you like what I saw well, a little bit of was that Trace and Rafa are, are definitely poor and they are in a, a bad situation where they have to take risky jobs to, to kind of get by, but they're also really skilled and savvy and their world, like any world that is, you know, any world that has ever existed is unfair. Uh, but Rafa seems to understand that her duty as the older sister is that family is priority number one. They've got to make money. They have some skills. They're going to fix up these droids, and they're going to send them back out into the world regardless of what these droids are going to do. I don't I don't really think that Rafa was, like, greedy but maybe irresponsible. But what stuck out to me there was that Ahsoka's outsider perspective on morality was that this was supposedly an easy choice for them. Um, and, you know, why are, why are you thinking this way? Why are you running this hustle? Why are you working on these droids when they're dangerous? And, and they're just kind of like looking at her like, because this is our life. <laughs> like, who are you to kind of come up here from the upper levels of Coruscant and, and tell us, like, what is a moral choice when we're trying to eat? I think Trace pushed back on it a little bit. You know, she was sort of agreeing with Ahsoka and pushing back against Rafa in some ways and saying, you know, these droids are actually pretty dangerous. You know, this might be yeah. a bad decision that we're making. Again, like if we go back and look at the wealth and income inequality on Coruscant, you have a lot of wealth. You have a lot of money that's being poured into the military. You have a lot of money that's being, you know, uh, at the hands of the government at the time. It's, it's not a poor society in any ways. If you look at the skyscrapers on Coruscant, but again, you have this government that doesn't feel like the people in the underlevels are valued. And I think if you have a sort of government like that and you look at the social determinants of where those people are heading, you know, if, if they don't have health care, if they don't have an education, if they don't have a good standard of living as a whole, if they're not living in a healthy society, what are these people going to resort to? They're going to resort to crime. They're going to resort to things that are not good for them and they're not good for society. And that's just how I see the episode as a whole. Yeah, and and I I I really think it's it's true, and I I think a lot of people who are listening to this might listen to to Muhammad and myself and go like, all right, guys, come on, this is a stretch, but it's really not. It's really not. It's not. And and it, the episode was was just sort of incredibly transparent about the economic. Uh, choices that people have to make. And it's not just about Ahsoka going on some like, you know, derpy adventure in the lower levels and helping stop some droids. It's about the restraining bolt that goes on the droids. And the sisters have a disagreement about whether or not the droids need to have a restraining bolt on them while they're getting the work done. And then when they return the product to the Twi'lek who ordered those droids worked on. And the droid takes off without their restraining bolt and goes on a rampage throughout the entire lower level, uh, destroying property, putting people in danger, almost killing, trace. Uh, it's a very dangerous situation. 
And uh, Rafa kind of thinks about it as like a non-issue, like, oh, this is just, you know, this is just kind of doing business. And they kind of come down to the decision of whether or not this needs to be done with restraining bolts. And I don't remember actually what their conclusion was. I think they did not put restraining bolts on all of them at the end of the episode. Rafa but, got the word of the word of the, yeah. the way of the word. But this is this is it. This is it's social responsibility, um, you know, versus personal self interest, and that's what the episode was clearly about. It's it's a slightly like regulatory message um, about whether or not like there need to be um, you know public safety. Uh, you know, uh, fail safes put in place when you're doing this kind of stuff. That if you're going to be making money off this, you can't endanger the rest of the community. Like that's pretty transparent, I think, in the episode. And we can't ignore that Star Wars is a deeply, deeply political text. These themes are here for a reason, right? If we even look at previous episodes in the Clone Wars, like Pursuit of Peace, for example, was the episode where Padme was trying to end the war entirely between the Separatists and the Republic and trying to create sort of this mindset of empathy and how maybe the Separatists actually are valid in many of the concerns that they have. And her effort to stop the Clone Creation Act, I believe it was, if I remember correctly, um, was specifically because there's so much suffering that's happening on Coruscant and the underlevels. Her aide Tekla at the time said that she couldn't afford electricity, wasn't able to put food on the table, wasn't able to have a decent standard of living. And because the Republic needed to take care of these people, we need to stop the war. That was basically what it was about. And we're seeing many of these similar themes here between what are the priorities of your society? Are they with war or with people being taken care of? And I think this is one of the things that makes it really muddy for for me and 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 for you to kind of dissect, you know, what is economically justifiable when it comes to poverty in a place like Coruscant. None of us know the the budgets of you know Coruscant. We don't know like what their government does and does not do. We know that it's incredibly opulent up at the top, and that there are a ton, a ton, a ton of people on Coruscant who live their lives in the dark and in poverty and in incredibly crushing conditions. But we don't really know the specifics of of economics in that world. But what we do know, if we just sort of take it down to the small level, is that people are incredibly resentful about what the Republic is engaged in. The war is not popular. And it is for the same, it's for the same reason that we see in our own world when, you know, the 08 bank bailouts come around and people are going, you bailed them out, and apparently you have money to do that, but you can't keep me in my house. And like that's that's kind of what this is is all about. Um, is that you can see what your government does spend its money on if it's going to spend money, and you're like, well, I know that that's not the right thing to do with it. It's not you know going to war in the Middle East. You why couldn't why can't we talk about you know, social safety net X or Y. Like, that's how people feel. It's not how I feel, but it's how people generally feel. <laughs> right. And if you look at the Iraq war, how much did that cost us? I think it's estimated around $7 trillion up to this point in terms yeah. of all the costs amounted. Yeah. The war in Afghanistan, for example, I think it has an approval rating of 12 or 13% among the American people. So all this money being diverted towards adventurism in the Middle East, really, in my opinion, as a branch of American empire, is really, really hurting us, really disintegrating us here at home. Our life expectancy has declined in the past three years because a lot of people just don't have a decent standard of living. And I, I know you I know you bristle at this. I know you bristle at this, Mohammed, but like this is where the Trumps and the Bernie Sanders of the world come from. Is they they see this and they go, Why aren't we doing more at home? <laughs> and both of them come from that school of thought. They're not similar at all in their their prescriptions, but they both have that anger and that that sort of like recognition that the United States government just like adventures around the world, burning money and killing people uh, and not taking care of its people. And I think Bernie and Trump have different ideas of who the people are. Right. And it's not to say that we shouldn't have a role in the world. It's not like we're, you know, isolating ourselves, but the United States can also have a role for diplomacy, peace, and justice as well. Negotiations are definitely a part of how our foreign policy can be centered, right? It's not about necessarily invading countries to say that we're strong. It's about also bringing the world together to combating common goals. And you don't always have to do that through militarism and war. You can do that through diplomacy as well. And I think that's the difference between 
the Trump and the Bernie Sanders is that the Bernie Sanders is more focused on a mindset of justice in a way how we can restore uh, peace and security to the world in a way that really helps uh, vulnerable people that are suffering as a result of it. So I want to go down to the smaller level here of, of Rafa and Trace. I, I talked about social responsibility versus personal self-interest, but I think another way that we could frame that would be individualism, where Rafa is very laser-focused, I think, on just what is good for them and what they need to do to survive. And she has very little interest in sort of this, you know, hand-wringing about putting the restraining bolts on the droids because they could cause harm elsewhere. It's it's not her concern in her view. And we are, are sort of seeing in our own time a, a huge clash between collectivist versus individualist thinking play out just with like the COVID-19 outbreak and the workforce that is displaced by the outbreak, but still have to make choices like things of going out into public um, and possibly spreading contagion um, during this time because you can't, for a lot of people, you can't just like not go to work, right? Um, And they're, they're, there immediately you have like the clash between like what is good for society versus what is good for me. And you, you sort of get an irreconcilable and chaotic uh, society. Um, You know, it's this, this whole outbreak that we're in right now, like I'm on, I guess like day seven or day eight of self quarantine um, has been, has been incredibly interesting just because like my wife, like my wife works in grocery, like she has to go in every other day and be around the public. And that's the the reality for so many people. It's, it's an economic decision. (laughs) And it really shows, I think how the working class of this country really are incredibly, incredibly important in making sure that people are being taken care of. It's grocery store workers that are protecting society and the most vulnerable right now. It's healthcare workers who are doing that. It's people who are in there in the trenches day to day, taking care of the elderly, the sick, the poor, making sure but that they have- then there are these idiots on spring break in Florida. You know? Right, exactly. And, and it, it, it really is, is, is very disappointing to see how these people who are out of work are, you know, being left to fend for themselves. What happens if you can't put food on the table? Because if you don't go to work, you don't have any income. What happens if you can't pay your rent? What happens if you're not able to pay your electricity or your water bill because you're out of work? What happens? I mean, these people are are going to suffer because of this. And it really shows how our social structures right now are very, very weak in combating a crisis like this when it comes along. I think I agree that some of our social structures are weak and not able to handle crises very well. The United States is not very well equipped for that. Um, And I I think that's why you've seen a really bizarre amount of kind of loving on the Chinese government and their system at this time because they handled this entire situation like an authoritarian government would. Um, But what you do have in the United States is a a great degree of flexibility across the workforce and in emerging um, sectors where like, you know, a lot, a lot of people are able to work from home because the world is not like it used to be. Not everybody has to go um, to work on like a nine to five in person like they like they might have had to in a decade past. Like the world is always different. I, I guess I just I'm reluctant to be like the United States, you know, society or, or the, the response has been like the worst thing ever. Things are still chugging along. And then there's like that entire weird narrative about the Republicans leading the charge on sending checks to everybody in their home. Yeah, like a pilot run for universal basic income, which like what timeline are we living in, Mohammed? This is just right. And, um, and the, the establishment Democrats are actually opposed to that in many ways because they want it means tested. Right. So you have in some ways that the, the Republican Party is actually in support of a universal basic income that's given to everybody, whereas the Democrats are actually saying that, no, we should have regulations on this, which is very, I, very I, interesting. Well, I, I and think, I think one of the weaknesses that I wanted to point to in terms of our social system is our healthcare system, right? Right now we have 89 million people who are either uninsured or underinsured, you know, 60,000 people who die because they don't have healthcare every year. What happens if you get the coronavirus and you can't afford going to a doctor or you're hesitant to go because the bill would be too high? Society as a whole suffers because of that. So I think because of, in my opinion, this is my political philosophy. <laughs> having Do you these work sort of for the Bernie Sanders campaign? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So ha- having these universal systems where everyone is taken care of makes our society much more stronger and healthier for generations to come. Because when a crisis like this hits, people know that they have that security of being able to go to a doctor and having those needs met. Yeah, I'll have a I'll have a. Uh... A humble moment for you. You and I, you and I, don't agree on on much when it comes to public policy and economics. But I, uh, you know, I I don't currently have health insurance, and I have a cough, and I'm super nervous about it, and it it's terrifying. It's 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 just terrifying. Um, I. I, I would probably let my temperature like run well over a hundred and pass out before I would go to the doctor because I I just. I, I'm not going to go and I'm not going to foot that bill. Um, I can't. And that is, that's real life. You know, that's real life folks. <laughs> this is the reality in this country. This, I mean, in, this is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And we have people who are worried about going to the doctor when they're sick because they can't pay for it. During and it could be, a, it could be, it could be something that's chronic. It could be something that catches up to them later on and they put it off. And this leads to 60,000 deaths a year. It's like, how can we say that we're in some ways a moral advanced society if we have people who are dealing with these experiences on a day-to-day basis? And, my, and that's why I got involved in you know, this political process and the system in the first place, because I believe these, this, is, this is immoral to have a society like this uh, where people who are vulnerable working class people uh, don't see that sort of security in terms of having a healthcare system that works for them, you know, having an educational system, making sure they have money. um, This is really important stuff. How would you classify the differences between Rafa and Trace in this episode? Because I, I think Rafa, though she's like a sympathetic character and you're supposed to like her, I think they cast her in sort of the role of like being the individualist sister where where Trace is a little bit more reticent about it and she's a little uncomfortable. Do you think that Rafa is sort of supposed to stand in for individualism? I think that a lot of Rafa's decisions are come from a mindset of scarcity and a mindset of taking care of her sister, right? Okay. So that individualist mindset where she believes that it's me against the other person. It's not that the we're in this together. And that's a very understandable mindset and perspective to have given the situation that she was born in, the place that she was probably raised in the underlevels, where it's really uh, sort of rugged individualism, where it's about me competing against other people in order to get what we need so we can eat at the end of the day. But I think, I don't think, you know, it's, it, I understand the mindset for sure. But unfortunately, it's, it's just the reality that, you know, many, many people are going through because of that sort of scarcity that exists. And unfortunately, that's the reality, not just for Rafa, but probably for many people who are living in the underworld with the same experiences. There's a lot to chew on. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot for all of you out there to think about with this episode. Um, you know, you can look out into the, into the world around us and see examples of, of public good versus, um, you know, personal self-interest play out in all sorts of ways. And you can also just sort of see play out in all, all different manners of policy areas. You know, when, when people are just trying to get by and, and, you know, feed their families and use their skills to survive, like whether it's, you know, wanting to like run a haircutting business out of your own home, but like you have to get a license and pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to actually be a licensed haircutter, even though you know how to do it and you do it really well. And then someone comes in and tells you, you can't do that. Like that's also like the Ahsoka, like, you know, kind of coming in there and just being like, Hey, you guys should be thinking more about your choices because it's, you know, harming the community. And they're like, why are you telling us this? Like, we're just trying to, you know, make our livelihoods work. Um, there, there are, yeah, and and I just uh, I just want people to like to leave each other alone to a certain extent and just let them do what they need to do. But what you see uh, play out in the lower levels of Coruscant is just is just sad, and I think you're supposed to take that away pretty clearly. It's you can have all sorts of debates about real world politics that I think are completely um, that have a lot of merit, but politics of Star Wars have always been pretty clear, and I, I think it's just best to be honest about them when, when they're giving a message that I think is pretty focused towards social democracy. Is I find it interesting that Ahsoka is so isolated from these type of experiences, so detached, because you think the Jedi would actually be concerned and maybe send people there to see what 
the vulnerable are going through in the under levels, you know, but she is totally detached from the day-to-day experiences that they have and her to come in there and sort of affirmatively say that, you know, this is bad or, or this is good, or let me make the decisions for, you know, for you sort of paternalistically is, 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 it shows the elitism of the Jedi order as a whole. And I think that symbolism is really, really important. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where you and I kind of always come back around to agreement, um, is on, on the issue of like paternalism and elitism and high-minded people having big ideas about what life is really like for people and then just trying to implement scold um, and and sort of, you know, wag their finger at people for the things that they, they need to do. And there are ways that you can reform society into, you know, in a completely different mold. But in the meantime, I just, I just really don't like the elites uh, trying to kind of look down on everybody and say that they have some sort of grand vision that we just need to fall in line for. Like, that's where I kind of get off, get off the train there. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and segue out here to the end of show legendary Bantha fodder segment where we share something that has been on our mind, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. I'll go ahead and lead us off uh, and then give Mohammed, our guest here today, the final word. So the Trump Department of Justice, led by Bill Barr, has asked Congress to craft legislation allowing chief judges to indefinitely hold people without trial and suspend constitutionally protected rights during the coronavirus and other emergencies. Uh, This is according to a report by Politico's Betsy Woodruff Swan. Uh, You can find this in the news today, that being March 21st. So when you hear this episode, just kind of go back a couple of days. This is unlikely to go anywhere with a Democratic House of Representatives. In theory, you would think that. But it is a story that should remind people, everyone out there, about how power works during a time of perceived or real crisis. I want to put some emphasis on perceived because, you know, quote unquote, crisis is a favorite word of alarmists everywhere who want to bypass, in my mind, normal measures uh, in order to achieve their pre-existing political goals. You hear it across the board. X is a crisis. We need to do this. This is a, a war and we need to be able to, to clear the way for whatever sort of means necessary. But basically the DOJ request is to have Congress suspend habeas corpus during this time your constitutional right when arrested to appear in front of a judge and petition to be released before trial. Uh, The executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers said, you could be arrested during this time and never brought before a judge until they decide that the emergency or civil disobedience is over. I find it absolutely terrifying, he said, especially in a time of emergency. We should be very careful about granting new powers to the government. I completely agree with you, executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense defense lawyers. I'm going to tweet out a link to the story and put it in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. It's not really clear to me why Bill Barr and the Department of Justice would want this, but I guess they are looking at the possibility of civil unrest here in the near future as the economy um, continues to crumble, unemployment rises, and fear over the pandemic might continue to spread and get worse. And I think that they want to be able to have the ability to arrest and detain people indefinitely. Um, big surprise, (laughs) big, big surprise. Uh, it is, it is. And I think my, my attitude about that is, is like not surprised. Like I, I sort of think about government, you know, bureaucrats always wanting to do this kind of stuff, but here we are. Uh, but Mohammed, uh, what is your band of fodder? What is on your mind? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. Appreciate it. I think, during these times, there's a lot of emphasis on self-care, and I think that's really important. But I also think it's very, very important to make sure that we take care of one another. So reaching out to your neighbor, reaching out to the most vulnerable people that you know, creating a social support system among one another, whether it's buying groceries for your elderly neighbor, your, you know, your grandmother or your friend's grandmother, or whoever is in need during this time, whoever's sick, whoever might have a chronic illness, is those people who are at the forefront of these issues and this crisis in particular. Uh, Those who might be dealing with economic 
you know, insecurity. And I think that focus on community care really is the type of vision that we need in terms of these crises coming together. Because if we come together, really, that's when we're going to be the strongest in terms of combating such a scary, scary time such as this one. Um, And I think that is how we create the infrastructure for dealing with it when it comes again. I really just want to give hope to people. I think that we are really going to overcome this um, and by taking care of each other, that's how we're going to do it. That brings us to the end of episode 82 of Beltway Banthas, The Clone Wars, Economics, and Social Responsibility. I've been your host, Stephen Kent. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent89, and you can find Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. And our home network, RetroZap.com, lots of great podcasts via RetroZap, tackling all sorts of pop culture topics that I know you will love to get uh, involved in. You can also leave us a review at Podchaser.com or at any Podchaser or Podcatcher that you use. We would really appreciate those reviews. After the show has sort of been relaunched um, after our winter break, we we need those reviews to kind of get people listening again and get people tuned in. Uh, so if you can take the time, we would really love it if you could do that and tell people about Beltway Banthas. Uh, my guest this week, my guest host has been Muhammad. Muhammad, can you tell people where to get connected with you online and follow more of what you're doing? Yes, if you are interested in learning more about my thesis or <laughs> my commentary on Star Wars, you can follow me on Twitter at Momo Shakibnia, uh, Momo, M-O-M-O, and then S-H-A-K-I-B-N-I-A. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, so feel free to reach out to me there. I'd love to engage with any fans who are interested in talking about these topics more. Mohamed Shakibnia, thank you so much for joining Beltway Banthas. This has been fun. Um, all the rest of you, stay safe. Uh, stay inside as much as you can these days. We're going to get through this one way or another. We're going to get through it together. May the Force be with you all. Always.